Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, good morning, Covenant. Good to see you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, join me in the text that uh, Sister Michelle read for us earlier today, the 127th Psalm, brand new series starting today. And the, um, well, the bumper video went kind of like raising kids, didn't it? It doesn't always work the way quite that you think it will, but we're going to talk for the next eight weeks or so about raising children, what that looks like, what God's plan is for that. And since we're doing that, and that that subject has already been announced, let me go ahead and get started by heading off a, a couple of things that are probably on the minds of some people. First of all, for those of you who are not parents, either you're no longer a parent, you're now a grandparent, maybe you've never been a parent, which is totally fine. God doesn't call everybody to that task, but he will call the vast majority of us to it. And so I would ask you, first of all, just give your brothers and sisters who have children some deference over these next eight weeks, but don't also lean into this thinking to yourself, well, you know what? The next eight weeks are going to be a waste of my time. God's word is never a waste of time. It's not a waste of your time. It's not a waste of my time. But let me ask some questions. Maybe you are a, well, you know what? Let's, let's do a little exercise. If you're a parent, raise your hand and keep it raised. All right, everybody look. All right, see you. All right, now, if you're not currently parenting a child, but you're a grandparent, keep them raised. Parents, keep them up. All right, grandparents, now, I want you to raise your hands in addition to those. Okay, if you have worked with children before, or you work with children professionally, raise your hands, get them up. Come on, keep them up. Oh, I'm not making you do hard exercise. Come on. All right. If you saw a kid since the time you got out of your car, raise your hand. You all right? This is, all right, now you can put them down. This is everybody's responsibility. That's my point. All right? So we're going to aim a lot of what we're talking about at moms and dads. We're going to aim a lot of what we're talking about. I know there's a, a, a kind of a, a large increase, for example, in the amount of grandparents who are having to, for various reasons, having to kind of step up and take a role that perhaps my parents didn't have to take in, in raising their grandchildren. That, that's a role. All of us within the body of Christ are responsible to some extent for the children that run within our circles. And so in many ways, that ties this series with the last one on what it means for the church to be a family. My friend Russ Moore wrote a book some uh, years ago entitled Storm-Tossed Family, and he, and he says this. It's a rather extended quote, but I think it ties together what we finished up last week with what we are going to be talking about in the next eight weeks. He says, we cannot be families if we are not disciples first. We must recognize the joys and responsibilities that come with being part of a family formed not by the blood of biology, but the blood of crucifixion. The church has often failed at this point. In too many cases, we have turned congregations into silos packed with countless minivans full of individual families coming to receive instruction and then return to their own self-contained units. The end result, especially in a rootless, hypermobile American culture, is the reality of mothers who are lonely and fear they're failing but don't want to say anything for fear of being judged or stirring up the mommy wars or fathers who are lonely but don't know what they're supposed to aren't supposed to signal that they don't know what to do about their son's pornography addiction or their daughter's anorexia. 
Our churches are often filled with unmarried or divorced or widowed men and women who believe that they are without family because there is no one to stand beside them in the church directory picture. And yet the cross shows us that we need each other. We will never be godly families until we are brothers and sisters to one another. So that's who this series is aimed at. It is for all of us as it pertains to the raising of children. But I'll be addressing parents primarily for this reason, quite simply. Moms, dads, grandparents, if you're raising your kids, guardians, if you adopted a child or you, you have a child that you have custody of, you are the first expression of authority in that child's life. So however they learn to relate to you is how they'll relate one day to a police officer or a judge or a boss at work. So think about that for the sake of all those other people. That you are the first embodiment of authority. You are their primary educator. You say, well, I send my kids to public school. It doesn't matter. You are their primary educator, and you are the principal steward of those children. And behind every mom and dad and single parent and grandparent now raising their grandkids is the body of Christ. We've all got to have skin in this game. And so we want to start this eight-week series by asking this question. What, are, what exactly are we doing? What's the end game? I don't know if you're like Mrs. Rainey and I, but oftentimes, especially when the kids were little, we didn't just ask the question, are we doing this right? We asked, are we even doing what's right? Like, what are we supposed to be doing exactly? Are we the only clueless parents? Like, what's the end game here? What is it? All right, to what end are we working? I got really excited about putting this series together, and I mean, we had a lot of new parents with young kids that really over about the last year or so have have come into our church family. Amy and I have had the opportunity to spend some face time with so many of those new families, and it just became apparent to me throughout the summer. You know what? This is something that parents struggle with. It's something Amy and I struggle with. It's something the generation after us will struggle with. And it's not the first time I've talked about this subject at Covenant. In fact, the last time I told our staff, hey, I'm going to spend a few weeks talking about parenting, I got a warning from the staff that I suspect is still valid. And it went something like this. You know, at Covenant, there's a lot of strong opinions about things. When it comes to parenting, there's a lot of strong, like, like, do I spank? Do I not spank? Do I immunize? Do I not immunize? What kind of education should I, public, private, home, what do we do? Do I breastfeed or do I bottle feed? Like all that stuff. And, and you wouldn't believe. And I'm like, well, yeah, I got a pulse. I, I, I get their strong opinions. Fact of the matter is so much of that is just a matter of personal conviction that you as a mom and dad are going to have to decide for on the basis of your family. We're not going to thus saith the Lord to you anything the Lord hadn't thus said. Okay. We're just not. Other things are addressed by God's word, but they can be applied in, in different ways, depending on the family, depending on the kid. Just, just take ways in which you discipline your child. They were uh, there were approaches to, to reformative discipline, corrective discipline with, that we would use with one kid that worked perfectly, that we would use with the other and go, what's happening? Anybody with more than one kid go through that, right? And so it just kind of, like the application, even of those things that are in God's word, you have to work through that. You've got to hunch and, and feel your way through that. Those are all important questions. And we'll touch on some of them just to give you some points of wisdom throughout this series, but they're not the most important question. The most important question is this, what's the end game? If you don't know what you're after, how do you know if you're doing the right stuff? What's the end game? What are we even supposed to be doing? And this is 
just to be honest with you, where our culture hasn't been very helpful, where oftentimes even in the church we haven't been very helpful because we've, we've allowed some models to emerge and even grow and be maintained that probably aren't very healthy. All right? it's a, in fact, even if you get beyond the obvious issues of abuse, physical, emotional, sexual, all that horrible stuff, or neglect of a child, there are some things that on the surface actually don't look bad. They actually might even appear to be signs of love, but underneath, they're actually rather toxic models of parenting. And I want to give you those by way of introduction. The first is this idea that my child lives my dream. Okay? I always wanted to have a baby right? I, I want to have a baby. I want to have a child. I want to, and, you, and you, you've already got it mapped out, right? Like you had your wedding day mapped out or guys, the first day of hunting season, rifle season or whatever, right? I got all this mapped out. I know how it's going to go. No, you don't. Parents, can I get an amen? This is how it's going to, yeah, no, it won't. Yeah, that, that's not how it's going to happen, but you've got it mapped out. And, and when it doesn't fit what you want and the kind of control functions that you put on that relationship, now there's a level of toxicity that comes up in that house that's not good for you, but it's especially not good for the child because what's going to happen if you keep living that my child is my dream sort of, sort of model, your kid's going to grow up with a short-circuited sense of identity because they were never encouraged to be their own person. You're not raising you 2.0. You're, you're raising a child. And their purpose, y'all going to love me after this is over with, the purpose of your child is not to enrich your life. It's not to make your life better. That's Maslow's Pyramid. That's not the Bible. It's not to help you achieve some kind of self-actualization. My child lives my dream is a toxic model for parenting. And a generation after, a whole generation, starting with me, really, living through that, we're, we're beginning to see the effects of that. Number two, my child meets my expectations. Now, this is a closely related but a little different model from the first because in this way of thinking, the child's value is not inherent in the child, but it's dependent on whether you are pleased, more specifically, with that child's abilities, with that child's skills, with that child's talent, with that child's particular choices in life, with that child's interests, or conversely, if you're displeased with their disability or lack of ability or lack of aptitude in this area or that area. So I'll give you one illustration. Yesterday was a football day because it's football season. Somebody say amen, right? I love that sport. I played that sport. I watched that sport. You know what? Neither of my boys have the least bit of interest in football. They don't. They don't. And so I can do one of two things. I can coerce them. I can force them. You know, they can go to Heinz Field with me, go Steelers. They can go, yeah, whatever. They can, they can like, we can, you know, we can do it. And I can take a selfie with all three of us and them faking the smile and put it on something and act like I have a relationship with them or I can have a real relationship with them. Right? Because you can't, that, that's not what they're interested in. All right? Both of them, to varying degrees and the different ways, they, they, they like gaming. There's a whole community of gamers. Now, now I'm, I, I'm learning. I'm trying to do the best I can, but I, I just, I, I've got a limit, and I will say, hey, tell me about this new game you got, or tell me about that, and I will do my best not to glaze because um, that's not a particular interest of mine. But I'm trying, you know what, because I'm their father, and the burden is on me, not them right? The burden's on me, not them. And, and that means that even when I glaze, hopefully they realize, hey, I, I love you. 
I love you, but, but I'm like two-dimensional Pac-Man's eating the things and can't get Inky Pinky Blinky or whatever that other ghost name from, and you're, you're trying to play Halo with me and you're stabbing me in the back of the neck and I'm like, I can't get out of the corner. Like, I can't, how am I supposed to do this, right? But, but that's the thing, like if, if I had a model of, I'm trying to live through my children because my knees are busted now and I'm a middle-aged, overweight dude and I want to put them in a helmet and pads and let them go do what I used to do. Well, that might happen, but it may not happen. And your child's value is not inherent on whether they meet your expectations in that regard. Now, here's the big one, right? The first two are dangerous. This third one <laughs> is prevalent. My child will be safe. The sole purpose, you may not say it this way, but this is the way you're acting if you're an overprotective parent. The sole purpose of my relationship with my boy, my girl, is to keep them alive. Which means you freak out a lot, especially if you've got boys. I'm just saying. All right? This is the uh, helicopter parent. You know what I'm talking about? They're always hovering. Always there, ready to pounce on anything. I had a intern interview once when I worked for the Baptist Convention, 22-year-old young man showed up with his mother. That interview lasted three minutes. I asked the first question. She tried to answer it. I said, thank you both for your time. Thank you both for your time. We're done, right? You hear me, moms and dads? Yeah. Yeah. You're trying to take it over, trying to make them the success, trying to give it. No, I don't. Listen, you you, you jack something up, and you will because you're 22-year-old and the prefrontal cortex of your brain's not yet fully formed, and I have to correct you as an employee. I ain't got time for mama to come in here trying to flog on me. We got a business to run, okay? But that's, that's the helicopter parent, right? Got a, yeah, a, a pastor friend of mine introduced me to this newer model called the lawnmower parent. You get in front of anything and everything that you think might be a threat or, or cause some hardship for your child and you mow it down. Trouble at work, go chew out their boss. Trouble with a college class and they're confused about some stuff, yank them out of the class. Trouble at the middle school, the high school, it's obviously the teacher's fault because Junior would never do anything, right? He just wouldn't. And what do you do when you do it? Like, like there's a, listen, underneath that's a healthy instinct, okay? You want good. I'm not telling you not to protect your kids. I'm saying don't overprotect your kids because if you do that, if you get in front of anything and everything that keeps them from being a success and you don't let them fail, you know what they're never going to do? Succeed. If they don't ever fail, they're never going to succeed. If they don't have a teacher fail them when they give a half-hearted effort, to an assignment, if they don't have a coach chew them out when they're walking on his field instead of running on it, let them face some hardship. Let them fail because you love them. You want good for your kids, but you can't always protect them from bad stuff. Sometimes bad things are going to happen, and the way to make sure you and I raise them to the glory of God and to self-sufficiency so that one day when we're in a nursing home or in the ground and they can't call on us anymore, they got this on their own. And the way to do that is to let them experience even some unfair and unjust things that are going to come in their life because we're going to have to deal with injustice until Jesus comes back. 
And yes, sometimes let them deal with their own dumb decisions and tell them, I love you. That was dumb. And you are going to have to learn from this. Now, all of that, all right, my, you, my child lives my dream. My child meets my expectations. My child will be safe. Contrast all of that with verse 4 of the 127th Psalm, because this is what God says is the aim and the goal for your children and mine. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Now, I want that metaphor to sink deeply into your soul over the next few weeks, because when God gives children, and especially when he gives children to Christian parents, he expects that you and I will release the arrows. That's what he's looking for. And so over the next eight weeks, we're going to say, what, what does that look like? We're going to extrapolate from this one singular metaphor. What's that look like when they're still pooping themselves? What does that look like when they're in their teen years? What does that look like when you're teaching them how to drive, when you're teaching them about sex? What does it mean when you're teaching them about how to love God and serve Jesus and live wisely in the world and make their mark on the world for the glory of God? For some of you, your children are already raised, and you're going to get some things confirmed for you. And you're going to be encouraged. Others of you will be encouraged, but in a different way, because you're looking at your adult child now, and you're thinking, maybe that I failed. And so we're going to talk about, it's been at least a week, talking about what, what happens when it goes wrong. Are there things that maybe you did wrong that you could do over if you want to do it? But, but are there things that really aren't your fault? Too often we take a passage like Proverbs that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, which is a principle of wisdom in the Scripture, not an exclusive promise that something will always turn out the way it's supposed to. Listen, this is the biggest risk you will ever take in your life. I hope, by goodness, I hope this doesn't discourage any young married couples without children from having children. But you should probably know this up front. One comedian, I don't even remember his name, but he just described this perfectly. What's it like to raise children? He said, cash out every bit of liquid asset you have, get on a plane, fly to Vegas, convert that cash into chips, walk up to the first blackjack table you find, push everything in on a hand you haven't been dealt yet. That's parenting. You don't know what's going to happen. You have no idea. It is a high-risk venture, but it's a worthy venture. It's a worthy venture. And some of you who've already been down this road and it didn't turn out quite the way you want, you might just be beating up yourself for no reason at all. So we're going to talk about that in this series together. What should be the cumulative effect on our church family, on this community, on the world, if we get this right? And it all starts with three essential postures that we find here in Psalm 127. Postures embedded in God's vision for your children, my children, dependence, thankfulness, awareness. That's it. That's it. Dependence, thankfulness, awareness. So, so let's take these in turn, starting with dependence. In verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. You see that all the stuff you do, parenting makes you tired, doesn't it? It makes you tired. You get up early, you go to bed late. Sometimes you're up in the middle of the night, depending on whether they're sick or what age they are, all that. This is what he's saying. You rise up early, you go to late rest, you eat the bread of anxious toil. 
like all this, unless there's something happening, unless you are wholly dependent on the Lord, every bit of that is in vain. You're just wasting energy. But then here comes the good news. For he gives to his beloved sleep. All right, so there's a twofold message in this psalm. The first one is this. Without your creator and redeemer as a Christian parent, none of this is happening. You and I as moms and dads are wholly vulnerable and dependent on the Lord. Right? You can read all the right books. You can adopt all the right parenting philosophies. Without the Lord building your house, your house won't get built. You don't depend on the Lord first. You don't depend on the Lord exclusively. This house will not get built. And you will continue to, as the psalmist says, eat the bread of anxious toil. So you got to do this God's way because he's not going to build a house that he hadn't approved the blueprint of. This is how God works. He's just like any good father. I'm going to generalize just a bit because I know sometimes the, the roles get reversed and that's, that's okay. But generally speaking, mom is the protector. Dad's the one that kind of stands back and watches them do dumb stuff and then tells them it was dumb. Am I right? Generally? Yeah. You get on a you stop at a rest area, there's an interstate highway, like three football fields away, but it's a big grassy hill, and I guess mom thinks they're going to roll, and they're never going to stop rolling until they're out in front of an 18-wheeler. And so she's like this, and dad's like, yeah. and then when they fall, mom's all over. And listen, you need both. I'm not making fun of one. I'm not disdaining the other. I'm saying you, you got to have somebody in that parenting relationship that's on that kid and cares for that kid. And you got to have somebody in that relationship that, that used to say what my daddy used to say. That was kind of dumb, wasn't it, boy? Right? That wasn't too smart. Isn't in, in there, in there some maybe a different way that you could? And God is doing that with so many of us. He did it with Mrs. Rainey and I, especially when our kids were younger. Right? Are we doing this the right way? You're scrambling. You're, you're, you're exercising all of your energy. And he's just like, okay, when you get ready to do this my way, I got a promise for you. When you get ready to let go of that control, when you get ready to let go of some of those toxic postures and be dependent on me, look what the promise is. It's going to move some of you. He gives to his beloved sleep. And all the parents of small children just went, sleep? Get out. Can I get some sleep? Can, is there some way? Really? I don't even remember what that is, Pastor. Yeah. It's tough, isn't it? When our first kid was born, Amy was managing a bookstore. She decided to leave that occupation, come home, and we would try to live as a one-income family. And by God's grace, with, with a few rare exceptions of her running a business for a few years, that's what we did and what we've been able to do. Uh, it's not easy. But you, you can make the sacrifice, you can get it done. I'm not saying that's for everybody. I'm not going to tell you, thus says the Lord, that's the way your family's got to be do it done. I'm just telling you, for us, that was, that was what we felt needed to happen. And because of that, because I was the one out working and she was the one home, she would be the one to do most of that kind of work. And so if there was a dirty diaper, she would change it. If there was a bottle, she would feed it. If there was a, a diaper in the middle of the night, anything in the middle. Of the night. But, but I wanted to be, I really did, I wanted to be an engaged dad. And I wanted to bless my wife. And so I told her early in this marriage, I said, baby, here's, here's the deal. I, most Saturdays, I don't have to be up any particular time. I don't have anything to do. So Friday night is your night to sleep. Okay? Friday night is your night to sleep. Baby cries, I'm up. I'm on it. Okay? And I, and, and I remember, she, she goes, I, I, fine, I'll hold you to it. 
First Friday night came and went. Fellas, I almost died. I don't know how she does it. I had no idea. I don't know how she did it. Furthermore, as much as I wanted to help her, it didn't really help her. Because apparently, I sleep through nuclear winter. And so the baby starts crying, and it wakes her up, and she looks over at me, and I'm like, right? So she's pushing on me. Baby, wake up. Wake up, it's Friday. You said you'd take care of the baby. So none, none, neither one of us is getting any sleep. Anybody else feeling me? Yeah? That's what babies will do. Parenthood always begins with restlessness. They are going to physically keep you up at night. And during that time, when they're like every two, three hours, it feels like every 45 minutes, they won't shut up, they dirty themselves, they want something to eat. I mean, why can't they wait for breakfast like normal people? And you're just wondering, when are they ever going to, when they sleep through the night, man, we're golden. And then the first time they sleep through the night, you're up every 45 minutes in there, make sure their chest cavity's up and down, aren't you? Yeah, you're just like, you're freaking out over this kid. And then, then they get, usually about the time they start sleeping through the night is also the time they start getting mobile. And so you buy like pack and plays and you buy gates and you buy all these things. And then you put the little plugs and the little outlets all over the house. And then you wrap the whole house in bubble wrap and you, right? And then, and it's right when you about think you got it mastered, you turn around and be like, how'd you get out of that pack and play? Good grief. And then when they finally, they get, they get mobile, so they were freaking you out before because you weren't getting any rest because they were keeping you up. Now you're, any, any, you're not getting any rest even during the, during the day either because they're, they're walking around like some, you know, like some, like, because they got this gigantic head that's three times the size of their little bitty body. And then they finally find a sense of balance and that doesn't help anything because they get faster and more nimble. And they start then giving you a whole different kind of tired because they start learning how to talk. So many questions about everything. And then you drop them off at preschool. And then you drop them off at elementary school. And then they, they spend their first night away, their first sleepover at a friend's house. And you stay up all night freaking out about an axe murderer. And then they start having other friends and asking you to drop them off a block before so they can appear like they got there on their own, even though they're 11, right? Then they get their phone, which you want them to have because in this technological age, you can track them and kind of keep up with them, and it gives you a little more peace of mind. But then there's, there's also the internet attached to that sucker and all the darkness and the danger. And then, then they start driving, and then they actually get their license, and we have a, you have a text exchange with your spouse like I did when 25 minutes after I sent her a text and said, well, he's off with the driving instructor, I said, he passed. And she wrote back, shut up. And I went, no, he really did. 
And the, you watch them after that for the very first time pull out of the driveway and get on the road by themselves with all those maniacs you know are out there. And then they move away to college. It, here's my point. From the moment they are born, it seems like, I mean, forget about your life and phases. Like, There's never another phase of their life where you truly feel like you can rest ever again. Like you go, but because they're yours, right? It's my kid. I love my kid. So, so listen to this promise of God's word, mom and dad. You adopt the vision of God for your children, which includes, among other things, holy dependence upon him. And he will build the house. That means he will shoulder the burden. You just do what is right in the sight of the Lord Jesus, and then you can sleep like the God that created them loves them more than you do, because he does. He does. As much as you may. I don't doubt anybody's love for their kid. You are not capable of coming close to loving your kid the way your God does. Be wholly dependent on him. Love him first. Let your kids see that. And this truth is it's, it's anchored in a really solid historical context. The opening lines are actually a really specific reference to the, the building of the temple. And there's some debate here as to whether Solomon is speaking of his own temple or prophetically is he looking forward to the second temple. Either way, really, there's this really close connection to the building of God's house and the raising of children. Now, that's important for those of us who are Christian because by the time we get to the New Testament, we're told that temple was a shadow of greater things to come, that it's passing away. It will not be back. It is obsolete. The temple is obsolete. The sacrifices are obsolete. It's pointing to something else. And that greater thing is the people of God, Jew and Gentile, being built up to, to bring him glory. We see that in passages like 2 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians chapter 2. And so right here, we're building that temple that Paul talks about. And Solomon says to us here, if we want to build that temple, it will require the combined efforts of parents and grandparents building the next generation, which means we need a whole host of shepherds, pastors. Only your sheep aren't probably going to call you pastor. They're probably just going to call you mom. They're probably just going to call you dad. And the only way you can shepherd those souls is the same way that's the is the only way someone like me could shepherd a group of souls by whole dependence on the Lord. And the reminder of verse one that headlines all of this instruction is that we, we can't do any of this without him, without following his plan, without stopping for a moment before we just buy into whatever the culture tells them we need to pay for or, or sign them up for. And stop and submit to his vision, being wholly dependent on him. So dependence, number one. Number two is thankfulness. Verse three, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. You and I live in a culture that doesn't encourage us to see children as something to be thankful for. I mean, it's not that we hate children. We love them. We talk about feeding them. We talk about ensuring for their well-being. There's not a politician alive that hasn't made some emotional appeal, even if it was a stupid policy. It's for the children, right? So on the surface level, there's this sense of, okay, we, we like, but, but the culture around the world often treats children with disdain, either intentionally or unintentionally. This goes back two generations, 1968. In fact, there was a book 
four years before I was born, called the population bomb. Paul Ehrlich sounded an alarm that said population growth would lead to mass starvation by the 1970s. Y'all look well fed. We're good. And called for immediate action to reduce population growth. It was around that same time that China implemented its infamous one-child policy. It was around that same time as well that abortion became the de facto method of birth control in Soviet Russia. And the whole thing based on a myth. There are now 7.753 billion people on the planet. That sounds like a lot, doesn't it? You could take all of those people, put them in the state of Texas. Texans would love that, wouldn't they? But you, you could. You could put every one of them in the state of Texas, and everybody there would have 500 feet, square feet of free space around them. Overcrowded planet, my left eye. It led to reduce it, reduce it, stop reproducing, stop doing every, every food shortage we ever had in the modern world, at least, has never been about supply. It's about logistical failures. It's about distribution lines. It's about interruption of those lines by corruption. But, but over the last several decades, we've seen the result of all of that thinking. China is now, for example, in a state of emergency because their female population is radically lower than their male population, which is one of the primary things driving human trafficking on the Asian continent right now. Ideas have consequences. That's my point. Here in the United States, our birth rates are so low that apart from immigration, if they don't come, we will not even be able to maintain our current population and sustain our own way of life, which includes, among other things, a lot of the social safety nets that we've set up for our elderly. And yet the culture continues. A child is a disease to be cured. They're a cancer to be cut out. They're a distraction to be ignored. Families with more than two children, we got a few of you here. You go out in public, you're stared at, sometimes made fun of, sometimes given unwanted advice. And it filters down even into the church. We have your children right now. We're caring for them. We're shepherding their souls. We're teaching them about Jesus under the leadership of our staff and our, our volunteer team just right down the hall here. We're keeping them safe. We're teaching them about Jesus, doing all those things. And sometimes we need a little extra help. You know what? We need some grandparents. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, I've raised my kids. Well, now you've got some more because you're part of this church family. And I love you. But when the response of a church that is taught this from the Scriptures about the value God places on children responds to, hey, we, we need some help shepherding the souls of our children back there with with. I'm afraid you're saying something you really don't mean to say, but are saying nonetheless about the value of children. It's awfully quiet in here now. I'll let you sit in that for a bit. We don't understand one very basic principle when we behave in all those ways. Giving children to people is what God does when he wants to bless them. It doesn't, now, if you're without a child, let me say that. I've got to say this. I'm in my notes. If you're, having, if you're having difficulty having children, your heart is broken. Listen, 
That is not a curse. Children are a blessing. Doesn't mean the absence of children is a curse. And your church family wants to be here for you in those times. And there are other families here who have gone through some of that same heartache. And we want to be here for you. We are not telling you there's something wrong with you. What I am saying is, when God decides to bless a people, one of the ways he does it is by giving them children. And children brought up in the right way will solve so many of these issues. That's not the primary reason we have them, but that's kind of the icing on the cake. And this is what the text means when the psalmist says they are a heritage. That word heritage occurs 219 times in the Old Testament alone. It describes a possession passed down from you to another person. So my kids or the heritage, you know, my, my, the inheritance, right? When my father goes to see Jesus one day, there'll be an inheritance that will be passed down to me. It's the same kind of language. My children are an inheritance that I'm leaving behind when I go for the next generation. So what, what am I leaving behind that, that will more greatly ensure the worth of what I'm leaving behind? And the first step in that is to realize, okay, this isn't really mine anyway. Because it's a heritage I'm going to pass down. It's also a heritage I've received. They're a heritage from the Lord. My kids don't belong to me. They belong to God. He entrusted me. All right? That should make you feel good. You're like, well, I don't know if I'm doing this right. He gave you a child. He blessed you with a child or children. He loves you. His desire. Listen, that should tell you something about his confidence, not necessarily inherently in you, but in your ability to be wholly dependent upon him and to, and to have the proper disposition towards him that will allow you to raise that child in the way that he was. He is trusting you with that child. He doesn't have to do that. Nobody's owed children in this world. He gave them to us. This is how we should view and value every child in this place. When you see a pregnant woman here, praise God for it. Maybe don't just assume they're pregnant. Maybe ask a question or two, but you know what I'm saying. I, when you hear laughter of children, when you see them wiggle in a service, when they join us here on family, it, it encourages my heart and breaks my heart when we do family Sunday on every fifth Sunday because of the number of parents who well, I'm not fooling with all that. I'm just staying home because there's no babysitting for you. When are they ever going to see mom and dad worship Jesus? When are they ever going to watch that happen? Thank God for moments like that when you can worship Jesus together as a family. And we need help investing in them through something like our children's ministry. Maybe act like those kids back there are what God's Word tells us they are, a blessing to you and to me. Not to be ignored like a pair of socks you just opened up at Christmas. Dependence, thankfulness. Number three, awareness. Awareness. And by the way, I know you're thinking, well, you're up there every Sunday. You never go back there. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do at least once a year, sometimes twice, and I know that's not as often as we ask some of you, 
But as you can tell, I got a little something to do at that point in time. But we'll put another of our pastors. And, and don't be surprised if this doesn't happen more often in the future because, as I've said over and over again, the, the Word of God is the star of the show here, not any particular personality. We put another pastor up here, and you know I'm on campus. There's a really good chance I'm back there with your kids because they need to know their pastor. And I'm going to tell you something. I have a ball. It's preparing me to be a grandfather one day, maybe. Right? I mean, I'm just, that's the way I think about it. It's like, this is, this is awesome. Spend that time. Dependence, thankfulness, awareness. This, is, this brings us to why does God bless us in this particular way? Verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Children are not a distraction. They are a blessing, but they are also not ultimate. My children are not ultimate. God did not give your kids to you, my kids to me, just so that we could have someone to spoil and take to Disney World and buy Christmas presents for and take pictures of and put it up on social media and brag about them and run hither and yonder every sports activity and every blessed thing they want to do, get them signed up for it and pay for it. Am I on a little bit of a roll here? That's not why God blesses you with children. It's not why he blesses us with children. They are, the, they are not the end. They are the means. Children like arrows in the hands of a warrior are God's blessed gift to you and me to shape the future. That's why he gave them to us. So everything you do, everything you choose not to do should be governed by that. Are we shaping the future in the best way? Because the metaphor here is the arrows in the quiver, and the, and the metaphor is not how many arrows you have in the quiver. To those of you who grew up in something called the quiverful movement that told you that birth control was a sin and you should just have as many children as God will allow you to have, and, and the result, frankly, is welfare rolls, slam full of people claiming to be followers of Jesus. But they're not able to take care of it. Listen, if you can take care of it, do it. Have five kids, have seven kids, have 12 kids. We're not going to assume anything about you around here. But do understand this. The point of the 127th Psalm is not to reproduce as fast as you possibly can. Sorry, guys. Okay? The point of the passage is to release those arrows out of the quiver and send them sailing into the world and shape that world for the glory of God. Is that what you te are teaching your children? Do, are, are my kids living with an awareness, continually reminded of that awareness by their parents that this is why they were created? This is why they were created. You know the huge swath of the mental health crises we're having in this country right now comes from people who don't know the answer to that question. I'm not discounting mental health professionals. You should go. Medication is not sin. Counseling is not sin. I am telling you, so many of them are overburdened because we have missed the most rudimentary step in telling our children, this is why you were created. This is what God molded you to do. It's why he put you in our family. You have purpose and value. I love that God has given us so many of them to do that with. I mean, there's a slew of them back there right now. There'll be another passel of them at the 11 o'clock service. I, 
I love seeing baby bellies. Makes me happy. I love going back to Covenant Kids and seeing it full. I love seeing our, our I love seeing grandparents. I, I, back there in the nursery, take you know what I love to see in the nursery? It's great birth control, among other things. I like to see teenage boys back there. You change a few dirty diapers. Learn how to be a father before you are one. I love those kinds of things going on on this campus. I love small groups that have emerged where one floor is moms and dads and the other floor is like 14 girls and what seems like 600 children walking, walking around, running around loud. It's a good thing. I love coming in here on Wednesday nights and not just because two of my kids are a part of it. I just, I, I'm, we, we started teaching again, so I'm back up, but from 6 to 6.30, more often than not, I'm going to be right in this room as our kids are gathered right over there, and there's going to be a spread, and they're going to eat, and we're going to sit, and we're going to have a good time, and I'm going to talk to them, and then I'm going to walk upstairs to teach my own class with the confidence that Pastor Chris is going to fill them with some of the very principles I've been talking about today. I love that. Because this word from the Lord tells me what that means. God is providing us with our future. God is providing, for that matter, he's providing the world. Do you know there were students from, from 12 nations right here last night, international students from Shepherd University? We had the opportunity to host them and to show them the hospitality of our nation, of our church family. That, that's the future. Our children are our future. The question is, what, what are we doing with it? Mom and dad, what are you doing with it? That's the question we want to answer over the next eight weeks. And I hope you'll keep coming back and join us because there is a ton of hope in our future if we get this right. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the blessing and the heritage that comes from you and that same blessing and heritage that is to be passed down to the next generation. Father, forgive us in those moments when we have not started with an attitude of dependence on you. Forgive us when we have not been thankful as we should be. And we'll admit in our weakened flesh, sometimes those cries at 2, 3 in the morning make it difficult to be thankful. Lord, forgive us for those moments when we've had a lack of awareness, when we've forgotten what this is all about. And may your spirit remind us of that. And over these next eight weeks, may your word take root in our heart in an irreversible way to give us a vision for what you want in our children, a strategy for how to get it done, and, a, and a, just a, a sense of rest in your divine and benevolent sovereignty because you love them more than we do, that you will build the house if we'll simply be obedient. So teach us to do it, Lord Jesus, I pray in his name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. 
and God bless you.